SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for Group of Five football as well as the FCS. Uh, Joe Londrigan and Eric Henry here to talk with you. And uh, we're going to have a special guest on this episode, something a little bit different than what we normally do, uh, diving in some some history of the game a little bit. Uh, we brought in senior NFL writer for ESPN as well as Anscape, Jason Reed. And uh, for those that, that don't know what Anscape is, it's what the undefeated recently rebranded to uh still the same great content about the cross-section of you know society sports culture race all that stuff and uh mr reed was nice enough to talk with us for a little bit about his new book rise of the black quarterback what it means for america and you know eric as folks are going to hear in this interview in a couple minutes i was really um jazz to be able to talk about some of the guys that um, were big in our childhood who are uh, kind of focal points of the story that Jason tells in this book with, you know, Steve McNair, Dante Culpepper, uh, Doug Williams was a, a little bit before my time as I'm, I'm just um, about to hit the age of 30. But really just some really great anecdotes uh, from him and his conversation with those guys that that we get into a little bit here but you really need to to check this book out if you haven't already for the full breadth of just all the incredible stories about what these athletes have gone through over the last you know 100 years in America first things first joe and again you know i, I will also piggyback off your comments and say i really enjoyed the conversation with jason appreciate him making the time for coming on but um uh, no way I was going to let it slide. You just used the word jazz to there. That was a you know a unique one. I, you not think given the nature of our relationship, I was going to let that slide. That aside, yeah. <laughs> listen, uh, given the nature, I mean, yeah, you know, I, we, we talk, I talked to I talked to a little bit with Jason there about you know kind of how how big of a nerd I can be, and that's perfect evidence right there, as you're going to find out in this conversation as well. And if you haven't listened to us by now, you you obviously understand the differences between Eric's vocabulary and mine from time to time. For our loyal listeners, I really wish you could have seen us when Joe and I actually got a chance to meet at Conference USA Media Days. It, it, it was kind of just the the culmination of this four-year friendship and this come together. So, yeah, if, if at this point you haven't forgot it's a brotherly relationship between the two of us, you know, and, and his <laughs> lovely wife is like my sister-in-law, then, you know, it, I, I don't know what podcast you're listening to. That aside. Talking about the the conversation with Jason, a lot of really important conversations there to be had. And, and I, I think, you know, for people who just casually or even hardcore watchers of, of college football and, and football in general, you know, you may not think about some of the trials and tribulations that, you know, or, or I guess I'll use trials and tribulations, but also some of the prog progressions of certain positions on the field. And I think Jason's book is a great read, a great opportunity to really learn about the history, the progression, uh, the future of of the quarterback position and, you know, the role that the, the black quarterback has to play in that. And as you talked about, a lot of our favorites, you know, obviously, I, I think the and, and I, I wish I'd had a chance to ask him about a few guys specifically, but you touched on one and Dante Culpepper. You know, I had three quarterbacks who, whether it was proximity or they just played the game in a way that spoke to me growing up. Those were the guys when you know, I was in, in elementary school and I grew up around football. I mean, my my dad and uncles and cousins, I mean, at four or five years old, they put me in front of the football game on Sunday. And, and you know, I am that type of football nerd. But the, the three quarterbacks 
or one Sean King, a, you know, being a, a native of Tampa and Sean King being a St. Petersburg native uh, had a chance to, I mean, even back to Tulane, you know, everyone talked about his record-breaking season. I believe in 1998 was a senior year, if memory serves me correct, at Tulane. Dante Culpepper, I mean, besides the fact that I'm a UCF grad, you know, that was really the first, uh, I guess I'll, I'll tell a quick side story, Joe. It, it was, uh, man, what was it? NCAA football 2000, I believe, or 99. I can't remember which. One of the early video games that mm-hmm. you know, my older cousin had on PlayStation. And I would play with him. And USF wasn't on the game at the time because they were making the transition from FCS, then 1AA, to you know FBS 1A. Um, UCF was because they had made the transition a few years prior. And as a result, the closest team in proximity, you know, school-wise, that was on the game was UCF. And all I remember, Joe, was all these great quarterbacks, you know, Florida State, Nebraska, Florida, uh, UCLA. You know, I wish I could remember the specific quarterback. Now, UCLA was Cade McNown because, of course, you know, in, in the college football game, you just had the, the number, right? You couldn't get the name. Um, but this one quarterback stood out to me. It was like all these big-time schools and then UCF quarterback eight. Right. What was amongst them as far as the top five, 10 quarterbacks. And that was Dante Culpepper. And ever since then, I fell in love with his game and ended up being a knight <laughs> in, in my own college journey. So that and then Cordell Stewart. I mean, at the NFL level, he just was so much different than anyone else I'd seen at the time in terms of someone who could run and throw. And, you know, I mean, didn't have the longest prolific career, but at, when he was at his peak, um, certainly a name that I watched. And then you touched on. Uh, another name like Steve McNair, you know, always loved Steve McNair's game. I mean, even going back to, you know, before the days then when when the Titans were really successful, you know, I think it was more the, the the Tennessee Oilers at the time before they transitioned to being the Titans. I mean, always loved his game as well. So really enjoyed the opportunity to talk with Jason about, you know, again, the progression of the black quarterback. And, and as you mentioned, the guys like Doug Williams and Marlon Briscoe and and, and those pioneers as well. Um, and we hope you guys enjoyed this conversation as well. Absolutely. So without further ado, uh, let's welcome uh, Jason Reed to the show and uh, really think y'all are going to like this. Jason, like I said, just going to jump right into it. If you could just kind of take us through what was the impetus for you in terms of, um, you know, writing this book and kind of what the response has been since uh, since it's been published. Well, back in the 2019-2020 season, the NFL was commemorating its 100th season. And looking at it, it just seemed like there were more black superstar quarterbacks or guys who could become superstars in the NFL at that point than at any time previously in, in the league's history. And being that the league was commemorating its 100th season, I just thought it would be interesting to look at how this group that was once the most marginalized in the NFL, black men who aspired to play quarterback, how did they rise to this position of power in this league at that time? And so I went to my editors, my bosses at ESPN, and I told them I wanted to look at this, and they let me lead this project. And well, Lamar Jackson, who was in his first season as a week one starter, won the NFL MVP award, the AP award, and did it unanimously, joining Tom Brady as the only other quarterback to ever do that. Patrick Mahomes, who won the league MVP award the previous season, led the Chiefs to their first Super Bowl championship in 50 years and also won the Super Bowl MVP award. And at that time, at only 24 years old, became the youngest player in league history with a league MVP award, a Super Bowl MVP award and a Super Bowl trophy. Kyler Murray, who was the uh, AP Rookie of the Year that year, he came into that year as the number one overall draft pick. Uh, uh, Russell Wilson had another great season. Dak Prescott with the Dallas Cowboys had a great season. Deshaun Watson had a great season. So 
that year truly was the year of the black quarterback in the NFL in terms of superstar black passers accomplishing things that have never been accomplished before, statistically and in terms of winning. Um, so I was going to the airport after the Super Bowl in Miami that year, and a literary agent reached out and said, hey, you know, I, I've been following this series, and I think there's a book here. But I, and I didn't want to write a book just on that year again. I really wanted to take a look at, well, okay, how did this whole journey happen? I mean, the NFL started in 1920. Black quarterback, a black quarterback wasn't even drafted in the first round until 1978. And basically, black quarterbacks for most of the last century were looked at in the NFL as being incapable, that they, were, they weren't smart enough and they weren't leaders and they didn't work hard enough. So how did we get to this point? That's the book I wanted to write. And you know, between 70 and 77 interviews later, we have Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. And I've, I've been really touched by the reception to the book because I've, so many people have you know, texted me or you know, contacted me and let me know that you know, this is something that's very meaningful to them um, and, and, you know, in their lives in terms of you know, looking at the history of the position and what they remember about people like Doug Williams and, and what he did in that Super Bowl performance for Washington. And um, you know, it, it's, been, it's been humbling. I'll absolutely second those thoughts, Jason, as someone who's read the book, you know, and also really appreciate you making time to come on and talk about it here. I I have two very specific topics that I want to dive into here with you that have, you know, have always kind of stuck with me in terms of the conversation around black quarterbacks and uh, may have some some follow ups off of your answers to those. But want to start, Jason, specifically with the the language around uh, black quarterbacks and, and the way we talk about black quarterbacks versus non black quarterbacks. I, I, I there was a tweet. I won't mention the person. I'll leave them anonymous. But you know, it was a tweet recently that made the uh, the rounds, um, and, and the, the language around it, Jason, essentially was, and I'm going to paraphrase here, uh, was you know, happy that the hypermobile athlete quarterback era in the NFL seems to be ending. You could ask a kindergartner what a quarterback is, and they would tell you it's the player who throws the ball. If you've got a quarterback who has to run around all the time, you have holes in your offense. In my mind, and again, you know, I, I. I don't necessarily believe that this person meant any malice. However, we can't change the fact that the way we discuss that position, and you can make the argument for other positions, uh, the way we discuss black athletes, it tends to revolve around, you know, athleticism and mobility and things of that nature. And the way we discuss our non-black counterparts are usually from the neck up. Just wondering in your mind, Jason, and as far as your research in this book and, you know, maybe your thoughts overall going forward, it, it, does that conversation need to change in order to prevent kind of pigeonholing, pigeonhole one style, one type of quarterback versus another? Well, first of all, I don't know about that whole thing about the era of athletic quarterbacks being over. I mean, if this person has watched the NFL, um, the RPOs, you know, run pass options are things that like are utilized. I mean, I don't know if this person has ever seen uh, the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. He happens to be white, but, you know, he, he's, he's very good. Uh, in the pocket and outside of the pocket. Uh, Russell Wilson is good inside the pocket, out of the pocket. Uh, you know, we don't think of Patrick Mahomes as someone who is a runner, but he's very elusive and he does things with his feet as well. So I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what this person is watching, but um, no, I, I, we're not out. We're not done with that era. As a matter of fact, we're, we're in this era to stay. I mean, you, you have to be, not necessarily a runner, but you have to be elusive to play that position. And, and I, I just think that that's 
crazy. But that aside, in terms of the language, yeah, you know, we are, we're still in, in, a, in a point when there is different language around people who are black who play quarterback and those who are not. And, you know, Patrick Mahomes, the, the superstar quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, a guy who for a couple of years there was the unquestioned number one player in the league. Now he's somewhere between one and three in terms of, you know, the top quarterbacks in the league. But he felt compelled to address this recently in training camp when uh, there was a, a, a ranking uh, in a, came out or a, a piece uh, written about quarterback rankings. And in that piece, these anonymous defensive coordinators, which goes right to what you're talking about, these anonymous defensive coordinators said that, well, with uh, Patrick, that he, once he gets off his first read, if you take that away, he has to play quote unquote street ball. And that's when the Chiefs lose. Well, you know, okay, first of all, Patrick Mahomes goes to his second and third reads often. So that, that was, you know, ridiculous. But to say he plays quote unquote street ball, that's clearly coded language. And to say that that's when the Chiefs lose, in the Super Bowl era, Hall of Fame quarterback Ken Stabler of, of the Raiders has the best record through 50 starts ever at 40 wins, nine losses, and one tie. You know who's right behind him? Patrick Mahomes through 50 starts is 40 and 10. To say that the, that the Chiefs lose when he does what he does is crazy because the Chiefs don't lose very much with Patrick Mahomes. The guy's played in the AFC Championship game every year he's been a starter. He's been to two Super Bowls. He's won one. And then additionally, that same piece ranking the quarterbacks talks about how the Ravens can't win. Another anonymous defensive play caller said that the Ravens can't win when Lamar Jackson has to pass. And this guy doesn't care if he wins 12 MVP awards, it'll never right. be a, a top-tier quarterback. Well, that's ludicrous. If you, if you win 12 MVP awards, of course you are. Now, I can point to metrics that say that Lamar Jackson has improved as a passer and he's very effective in certain passing situations. I can point to a week five victory last season in which Lamar Jackson passed for 442 yards, four touchdowns. He had an 86% completion percentage and set records. But that aside, okay, the reality of it is the Ravens play the way they do, but they have won games passing. But they also play the way they do because of what Lamar Jackson can do. So there is this coded language around black quarterbacks still, despite all the progress that's been made. And it, the language will only change when people open their eyes and, and want to be real about what's, what's going on. Again, if you just join us, we're joined by senior NFL writer for ESPN and Anscape, Jason Reed. His book, Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America, was released on August 2nd. Jason, got one quick follow-up on that, and then I'll ask uh, one more question where I pass it off to Joe. I don't want to oversimplify the issue, but is it seemingly as simple as when greater society is used to insert whatever is used to being done a certain way, and it looks and, and it's you know, done a certain way. And then there just seems to be a change in the way it's done that they just have a hard time accepting that it can be done a different way than the way it's, it's traditionally been done in the past. Again, I don't want to oversimplify what's a, a, a you know, much larger issue, but could it, it could just be as simple as that? No, I don't think that's oversimplifying. And I mean, let's remember when Lamar Jackson came out of college, uh, Bill Polian, who is one of the greatest NFL uh talent evaluators and, and roster constructors in the history of the game, he, he was very open about the fact that he didn't think Lamar Jackson should play quarterback. He thought he should switch positions and become either a wide receiver or a running back. Um, 
And then after Lamar Jackson won the MVP award unanimously, Bill Polian said, you know what? I didn't see the future. I didn't see what John Harbaugh, the coach of the Ravens, saw, that how he could build around this player. So, no, I, I, I think that when you talk about longstanding views, things that become ingrained about, well, this is the way it's supposed to be done, I think a lot of people do have a problem with that. I think a lot of people don't have the vision needed to see, well, there's another way of doing something. So, no, I totally agree. My final question for you, Jason, is, is this, you know, the conversation around quarterbacks, specifically once you get to the NFL level, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, with NIL, we'll see that trickle down to our level here at the college game is we think of quarterbacks as the CEOs of the franchise or the CEO of the program, right? I guess at the collegiate level, it's the head coach, but you, you get where I'm going here. I just want to kind of, you know, expand that conversation a little bit. Again, you can talk about CEOs in greater society and they tend to look a certain way, but is there something to the fact that when NFL teams are looking at a quarterback and, and they're going to invest, you know, that first round pick or a top 15 pick on a quarterback, they might not be used to their CEO looking or sounding a certain way as opposed to, you know, maybe a different way. And, and, and I could even make the argument that, you know, with certain black quarterbacks, such as Patrick Mahomes, Dak Prescott, even Colin Kaepernick. Um, you know, prior to the, the situation with him choosing to take a, a peaceful protest with taking knee, you know, certainly fit that mold of, of CEO. But then you take a situation like Jerry Richardson in Carolina with Cam Newton or maybe, you know, Lamar Jackson and others. They, they don't fit that CEO mold. Is there something to that in a sense? Well, let me say this. They're it, gone are the days when teams will be like, well, we're not going to take this guy because he's, he's black at, at the sure. quarterback position. Sure. I mean, that, that, that doesn't exist any longer. Um, I would say more about the CEO thing for a head coach. I do think that, that, that there's a lot still there with that. I don't think it really exists at quarterback anymore because if you are a superstar quarterback in college and you happen to be black, you know, let's look at the Alabamas, the USC's, the Ohio State's, all led by superstar black quarterbacks or guys who – potentially look like they are superstars in the, you know, down the road in the NFL. I don't think that CEO thing still applies. It clearly once did, and it okay. clearly still applies to head coaches. But I think we are past that in terms of the NFL taking these guys who will be the face of their franchises on the field. I do think we're past that. Joe, I'll let you take it away from there. Awesome. Jason, again, can't thank you enough for your time, but I uh, do want to dive into a couple questions about uh, the University of Central Florida's contributions to your book. Um, obviously, us being a G5 site, we got a lot of uh, Knights folks uh, that, that listen on a week-to-week basis. So I'm curious if you can, uh, for folks that haven't read the book yet, um, just shed some light on uh, some of uh, that university's contributions to the book because there's uh, a handful. Well, you're talking about Dante Culpepper specifically, right? In terms of- I mean, I, 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 yes, I am talking about Dante Culpepper, and we can we can definitely dive into to his playing career in a one of the other questions that I have here. But you also um, talk to a lot of folks on the academic side about examining kind of the the sociological, um, you know, impact of of some of the players in this book using some of their insights. Oh, so Dr. Harrison, you're talking about? Um, yes, that's a great example. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Harrison. You know, well, let's. Um, you know, let's talk about, you know, Dr. Harrison. I mean, you know, he made a great point in the book that, you know, it, it, it wasn't just that, that black quarterbacks were, you know, historically in the NFL denied opportunities. It's what those opportunities lost cost black quarterbacks and, and you know, black culture 
moving forward. I mean, he made a great point to me, and I and I and it was it was one of my favorite quotes in the book that if Warren Moon had been drafted into the NFL in 1978, or you know signed with the NFL in 1978, if he'd been undrafted, like he may own every single passing record that there currently is in the NFL. And what would that have done in terms of moving the ball forward so much more if he had entered the NFL as, as you know, a rookie coming right out of the University of Washington and the impact that it could have had moving forward if he proved, you know, in competition with the other quarterbacks on, on, a, on whatever roster he was, you know, part of, if he proved that he was the best. You know, you talk about – we talk about Doug Williams, you know, in 1984 – excuse me, in 1987 – in that seminal performance in the Super Bowl, that myth-busting performance. But when, when you think about what Doug Williams did back then, if Warren Moon, as I said, had been on a roster in 1978-79 when he was coming out, just the change that that would have potentially brought. So, you know, you, you talk about, you know, the, the university and the contributions. Um, it, 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 that conversation that we had really stuck with me because – I had not thought about it from that perspective about what could have been, you know, we, we, we talk about, we talk about the pioneers and we talk about what they accomplished, but a lot of times we don't think about what could have been the, 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 the changes that could have happened so much earlier. And so, yeah, he, he made a great point to me and that was something I thought was very, very valid. And I definitely wanted to put that in the book. You mentioned Doug Williams there, of course, the uh, incredible Grampling State product. And he's such an important piece of this story and the evolution of the position as a whole. Um, what has it been like getting to know the man and to get to frame his contributions to the game and within the book and uh, otherwise? Oh, you know, I, I had the good fortune of getting to know uh, Doug many years earlier because I cut I, I used to work for the Washington Post covering the, what are now known as the Washington Commanders. And it was really just a great experience getting to know him. And then Doug gave me a, a ton of time for the book, which obviously, you know, um, I needed him for. And so just hearing his, you know, stories and the things that he, you know, the things that he experienced, it was very, um, you know, I thought I knew most of it, but I didn't, you know, because when you sit down and you, this is my first book, so I, I had never experienced this before. But when you, do, when you do interviews for a book and you're taking so much more time to really dig into subject matter, you learn a lot. And I, and, I, you know, and I learned so much about just things that I had no idea about, about race in the NFL and how things occur. And, um, you know, it, it was very, it was eye-opening, you know. And, and you know, if I, can, you know, if I can bounce back for one more second to um, – you know, talking about the University of Central Florida, you know, Dr. Lapchik um, is another person who I really have benefited from, you know, in, in, in Dr. Richard Lapchik in discussing uh, not just the NFL and race, but, you know, how race and social justice and, and all these issues affect sport overall. So, you know, you want to talk about that, that, that university the impact that it has. There's some, some people down there. There's some people there who really have played major roles in shaping thought and, and helping to push barriers. And, and in terms of, you know, players, I mean, Dante Culpepper, obviously, you know, he, he was part of that 1999 draft class and uh, three black quarterbacks were selected in the first round. 
Donovan McNabb, Dante Culpepper, and Achilles Smith. And that 1999 NFL draft class, where those three black quarterbacks selected, there, there was this tacit acknowledgement by the NFL, well, you know what, these black quarterbacks can play. They can help us win and make money. So, yeah, we got to get them on these rosters now. Let's stay on the, the 99 draft class. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Donovan McNabb out of Syracuse, who, were, who was in the Big East at the time, Culpepper, Achilles Smith. Um, what, it, what did it really mean to have those three big names um, all fitting that mold of these, you know, incredible black quarterbacks uh, coming out at that time in America um, at the same time? Well, you know, the, it, was, it was 1978 when Doug Williams was the first black quarterback selected in the first round NFL draft. So, you, you know, the league started in 1920. So you think about that. Then, you know, 1999, you, you think that it's such a long time later. But when you see how long black quarterbacks had been ignored, essentially, you know, passed over, um, the fact that by, by 1999, the league is now saying, okay, yeah, this is significant. Like we, we, we need to have these guys here. And I, the, the fact that those three players, I mean, Achilles Smith did not have a long successful career. Dante Culpepper had, you know, by any, by any standard, you know, a, a good career. And Donald McNabb had a great career. I mean, a potentially Hall of Fame career, borderline Hall of Fame career. Um, so to have those three selected and to have two of them go on to have success, it definitely was meaningful and continuing to move the ball forward. I know, uh, you know, I know Eric uh, has a lot of history watching Dante Culpepper and him being one of his personal favorite players. So I'm sure I'll, I'll have to listen to him nerd out about that a little bit later. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, um, uh, for me, one of the guys that I have always really nerded out about was Steve McNair, the Alcorn State product, who uh, was, you know, just finished so high up in the Heisman voting when, when he came out of college. Um, so I would lo- I have so many questions about him but I'll, I'll try to keep it short one of the things that helped him kind of adjust to the the pro game and really in his last year of college when expectations for him were so high and you talk about this a little bit in the book was his relationship with with uh with doug williams so um curious you know what the process was like for you in examining his career and you know the um you know the evolution of his game from from college to the pros yeah, you know, Steve McNair, obviously no longer with us, uh, died tragically. Um, you know, and, I mean, look, he's the first black quarterback to ever win the league's MVP award. And so that, that was a big thing. I mean, he shared the award with Peyton Manning in um, and, and, uh, 2003. And, you know, you look at his transition to the NFL. He played at, you know, an HBCU, uh, you know, Alcorn State, and he didn't, you know, he wasn't, he didn't come out of one of those big factories, you know, one of the traditional powers, but he proved he could play in this league. And, you know, Doug doesn't take credit for anything Steve McDeer did. I mean, he, he tried to be a resource for him. He tried to help him. Um, but I, I, the, one of the things about Steve McNair you have to acknowledge is that this guy proved he could do it. He's one of the toughest quarterbacks ever. Okay, and that's what you talk to people about, and that's one of the things they say. And the fact that he won that MVP award – you know, we're talking 2003, black quarterbacks had never won a, a league MVP award. Again, another, another significant moment on the timeline where you get to today, and now, you know, it's not strange to see black quarterbacks win MVPs at all. Absolutely. And you mentioned in 
getting to talk a little bit with uh, with Doug Williams that, you know, he just has this vast knowledge of the game, you know, prior to, to his era from when he was, you know, coming up as a, as a young kid learning the game and that sort of thing. And you mentioned some of the things, uh, or rather you mentioned that he, you know, taught you a lot of things that you maybe didn't even know about the history of the game. And I'm curious what of those things sticks out to you as like the most memorable. Well, you know, I went into this trying to, I went into this trying to act like, okay, I didn't know anything about it. I just wanted to do like a blank slate and just start the interviewing, start the research, you know, reading books about black players in the NFL, talking to scholars, uh, and then doing my own reporting, talking to people who live this. But I just didn't understand the depth of the racism. I knew there was a lot of racism. I just didn't understand it. And so when, you know, Doug would tell me specific stories about things that were said to him and, you know, hate mail and these types of things, it really opened my eyes. I mean, again, I knew there was racism, but until you hear the specific anecdote, you don't know the depth of it. And, and so that's probably one of the biggest eye openers for me about doing this project, about writing this book, was just all the things I didn't know about how awful these people really were to them at that time. Some of the aspects of, of the book are, are obviously a tough read, but important to know for folks that need to you know understand the concept of, A, just American history in general, and, and B, what it's been like for these uh, incredible athletes that you talk about. Um, so moving into the present day, Jason, uh, what storylines are you watching in college football this year? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, you know, you look at you, you look at where college football is. I mean, you know, there's the whole NIL thing and it, it's led to basically, you know, what people consider to be free agency, people bouncing around, uh, the, you know, the, the transfer rules, it's, you know, you can transfer and play immediately. So obviously the, the college game with, with that and with all of the realignment, you know, as these conferences chase bigger paydays and, and you, you have all these schools, you know, leaving places they've been for, you know, a whole century basically. And you know, changing uh, changing addresses. So those are things. But like, what I'm specifically looking at is, you know, you look at Ohio State, you look at USC, you look at Alabama, all led by these incredibly gifted black quarterbacks. And you know, when you when you see these guys, when you see what where they are right now, what I'm looking at in the college game is see, okay, how is this going to affect the pro game moving forward? And you know, when these guys keep rising and keep excelling, you know, more and more of them are going to come into the league and have positions of, of, of immense power. So I look at the college game to see where we are in the pro game in terms of quarterback. And that's why I say we truly are in the era of the black quarterback right now, because these guys are coming from college and they're coming from high school and they're coming from youth football. And, you know, I look at things through an NFL lens. So when I look at college, I look at, okay, well, these three guys at these three schools are are next up. And then you know what? They're going to be guys who are next up right behind them. Last question for you, Jason. Is there a quarterback that particularly intrigues you um, as far as, you know, making some noise this year? Well, I think Caleb Williams at USC. I mean, he was you know, arguably the top freshman quarterback in the country last year at Oklahoma. Everybody knows the story. He left Oklahoma after Lincoln Riley, followed Lincoln Riley to USC and you know, Lincoln Riley is building everything at USC around Caleb Williams. I, I think that, you know, when you talk about these five-star quarterbacks who get into college, you know, the, the whole thing now is they want to play immediately to get that clock going so they can get to the draft. And, you know, Caleb Williams, look, we don't, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what he's going to do. But based on what he did at Oklahoma last year, 
Like, it would not be shocking, okay? Again, we don't know for certain, all right? No, no guarantees. But it wouldn't be shocking if he got USC moving in the right direction. And if he, you know, if he finishes high in the Heisman Trophy voting, I'm not saying winning it, but you could definitely see if things break right and if Lincoln Riley gets off to the start at USC that he, that he, he wants to and needs to, it's going to happen because of Caleb Williams in large part. And if that happens, well, yeah, Caleb Williams is a guy I'd be looking at to if not get a trip you know, to, to, to the award, maybe finishing high in his sophomore year. You know, I, my, my focus is really the NFL, and so, you know, I, I don't cover college football um, you know, I, I really focus on NFL football and, you know, and, until the draft comes around, you know, it's lesser guys who like, I specifically know it, you know, major, you know, major power five conferences, power five schools. I really don't look at group of five guys and, until the NFL draft. So I tell you what, if you, if you like to, let's talk again as the draft approaches and I can talk about this from a much more uh, solid footing than I could right now. <laughs> I might just take you up on that. Uh, the book is Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. Uh, of course, uh, Jason Reed from Anscape and ESPN, senior NFL writer. Uh, Jason, um, just to wrap things up, uh, where would you prefer people grab the book and uh, where can they find you on social media? Oh, thanks so much. Um, people can get the book at uh, anywhere books are sold, uh, barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, target.com, and you know also your local bookstores. I'd, I'd like to I like to read a lot, especially about history, and I love to support my local bookstore. And people can uh, follow my work at ESPN.com or Anscape.com, and they can follow me on Twitter at JReed, J-R-E-I-D-E-S-P-N. Fantastic. Jason, can't thank you enough for your time. It was a pleasure getting to talk to you and uh, hear about uh, the research for the book. So hope you have a great day and uh, stay safe out there. Hey, guys, thank you for having me. 